Welcome to episode one of Keep It in the Ground, an upbeat discussion on how climate activism can take on the oil and gas industry, brought to you by Fossil Free London. I'm Passy, and with me here in the virtual studio is Topaz. Topaz, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Passy. How are you? I am super excited that people have actually chosen to listen to us here and put us in their air holes because there is really an embarrassment of other climate podcasts out there. So what do you think? What is something unique that we are bringing to the table with Keep It In The Ground? Well, we want to create a way to learn from climate experts, authors and activists on how the fossil fuel industry is causing climate change. So we're going to be debunking some myths around climate doomism, but also offer some ways to get involved to make sure that we keep it in the ground. Amazing. And for that, we have a brilliant interview lined up with Nuri. Can you tell us a little bit about this, Topaz, before we get started? We talked to Nuri, who's from Fossil Free London, and he's going to talk about the impact of local activism and also the importance of it and how other people can get involved. So how Fossil Free London works. So it's really exciting and I can't wait. Yes, and just before we jump into the interview, here are just a few notes because the interview was recorded a short while ago and we mention a slightly outdated UK government. And I'm not even going to mention which one we currently have because who knows by the time that this gets released, which one will be in power here. But Nuri mentions that we anticipated around 40 new oil and gas licenses to be released. And this has turned out to be now over 100. And that's obviously terrifying, but yet another reason to stick around until the very end, because we will tell you how you can get involved in the fight for a livable future. I also couldn't help myself to talk about the windfall tax once again. That is, as we all know, completely broken. And before somebody calls me out on Twitter that I was completely wrong, I was spewing misinformation, I mentioned that there is a carve out for the oil and gas industry of 92p. It turns out it's only 91%. So please hold those tweets. And with that out of the way, here is our interview with Nuri. Today we're talking to Nuri from Fossil Free London, and we're going to be talking about how to get into climate activism. So what are your pronouns, Nuri? Hi, yes, I'm Nuri and I use he, him pronouns. Nice to be here. Lovely. So what is one thing that you wished more people believed in? So many things, but I think it would be, we would be in a far, far better position if more people believed that they could take collective action to change things in politics and to change things in the world, I think that would galvanise a far more engaged and like active and progressive and a, a, a world where we, where we weren't in quite such a mess. Yeah, that's such a great answer. So Nuri, now I want to ask you something a little more personal and share as much or as little as you want. You know, I have to warn you, this podcast might be listened to by literally dozens of people, so be careful here. No, but I want to ask you, not. how did you first get into climate activism and how did you get started? Well, hello, dozens of you. I initially got involved with it as a student, getting involved in the campaign to my university to divest from fossil fuels. I'd sort of you know, had an ongoing interest in politics, but I hadn't really taken practical action. And then very abruptly, mm -hmm. there was an occupation of the finance department of my university. And without really expecting it, I spent two weeks like sleeping in this finance department with about 200 or so other people, blocking all staff from getting in, wow. security guards sort of amassed outside, 
various like members of the Scottish Parliament, this was in Edinburgh, kind of dropping by to sort of give support and newspapers covering it. You know, I, I was, you know, by no means the coordinator of that. I just thought, oh, this is great. I'll go along. I'll support it. It was a really, really exciting, like exhilarating introduction to, to activism. I was aware that, you know, this university invested millions in fossil fuels and that, that was a kind of something that was appalling. But I hadn't been animated by it, I hadn't been gripped by it until like I, re- I went along to this protest and suddenly, yeah, there were 200 or so people just taking over this building. And through doing that, we were suddenly able to, you know, negotiate with, with the university senior management that had been fobbing them off for years. It, over the course of that, they won some massive concessions. The university agreed to pull out of its investments out of coal and tar sands. In the years since, they've done all fossil fuels. And it, I suppose it um, it really sucked me in because it was so um, there was so much that I felt like I could do. It was so empowering to see all these people coming together to take this action, and then it working. And yeah, you know, here, this this was I think twenty fourteen, and I'm now still in, involved. And if I can add just add one more thing on it, I think it really it makes me think that often when people get into activism or when organizations try to encourage people to take part in it they start with really small things because they don't want to scare people and they want it to seem manageable and i totally understand that but i think to some degree entering into it something that is much bigger can really grip you much more and can give you a sense of your own power more i think that's partly why why i'm still involved yeah it really sounds like you were thrown in at the deep end there My mm. first kind of nonviolent direct action was a lot smaller in scope, but that's such an interesting background. And we can clearly see that now it's like eight years ago and you're still very much active in the space. So it definitely worked as an awakening for you. Definitely. Yeah, no, I do think university is one of the best times to find people that are similar to you, believe in the similar kind of ways to change the world and and you can find your space a lot easier but yeah what about you guys how what led you to be here now how did you get involved with activism so for me it did start at university as well and i remember i joined the massive climate action strike that was kind of basically joined by so many students from universities and that was probably my first interaction with kind of civil disobedience tactics. I'd never really come across that. So people sitting in the road, but also just being in a protest and having that overwhelming feeling of like solidarity, it kind of gives you this bit of a rush almost. Like you're like, oh my God, we are kind of all united and this same cause despite being so different. So I, that was kind of my first introduction to activism. But I think later on, it kind of, as more developments happened, I got more anxious and just wanted to find a kind of space that was around other people, like you said, that want to essentially do something. And Fossil Free London was my first real introduction to actually being part of a community that takes collective action. What about you, Patty? Yeah, I just recently thought about it. I think my very first kind of protest was actually against an airport extension. I was back in primary school. But then there was a very, very long gap and I was a little tapped out politically and then was kind of woken up by the Brexit referendum. So literally on the day I was like, oh my God, what the fuck is going on in this country? And from then on, I went on to tons of protests, which as we all know, eventually weren't particularly successful. But there was still this kind of 
galvanizing feeling of at some point we had a million people in the streets of London. And even though, again, in the end, it wasn't very successful, it felt just so overwhelmingly, well, depressing to see the narrative come out in the press and in politics and then seeing so many people actually being there in person and standing up against it was just a very positive feeling and gave me a little bit of hope that better things are still possible. And then from there on, I went to join a bunch of XR protests. However, for me, it always ended at the point where it went into civil disobedience because I'm just an immigrant in this country. So I have a little bit less of a privilege than many other people who put themselves on the front line and I have massive respect for them. But so I was then very happy to discover Fossil Free London at some point, actually through a walking tour, which we should expand on, I think, in a separate segment at some point later. And from there on, I just did a bunch of different, smaller and larger things within this little community that we've created for ourselves. And maybe that's a good point, Nuri, to ask you how you got involved in Fossil Free London. Yeah, of course. I moved to London about a year or so ago. I'd been in a few different places doing different campaign campaigning work. But I got here and I sort of was still feeling the rising mountain eco-anxiety and existential dread. I hear you. And I wanted an outlet for that. But also I really kind of wanted to make friends and didn't know that many people in the city and thought activism is a really great way to do that because it throws you together with people who you know, chances are you share a lot with, you have a lot in common with, but it also it gives you a focus and a shared project, which is a really nice bonding thing, but also quite a lot of social time around it. And I just sort of did a bit of Googling and Fossil Free London came up and I thought, yeah, this is a lovely group that seems very approachable, that seems welcoming, that seems like it's doing, but also seems very committed. It doesn't feel like it's a sort of, you know, talking shop. It felt like they were actually doing things. So that's why that's why I reached out. Can I just say on the social bit, I can't believe nobody tells you this. They always say like, well, if you're like over 25, the only way to make friends is to get a dog and go to the park and meet other people. Nobody talks about activism. It's such an incredible tool for this. So yeah, thanks for making that point. It's 100% that. When I went to um, one of the protests recently, it was actually my first time going to the social part of Fossil Free London afterwards. And I was kind of amazed with how kind and, you know, approachable people were. I, I thought it would be kind of a bit more cliquey and I would have to really <laughs> nuzzle my way into a group. But it was actually like I was on my own and someone immediately came over to me and, and started asking me questions. We go, how are you? So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think as as campaigners and organisers, we are really quite often concerned about this in-group, out-group separation because we want to be we want to be open. We want to get more people in. And that, that doesn't always work. And there are examples, obviously, where it becomes it does become kind of insular and people get a bit intimidated by that. And I think that's something that we really have to try and counter as a as a movement. But I think when you when you do feel in it, it feels very, really, really, um, yeah, I guess sort of comforting and safe and a really sort of sociable space, I think. But yes, the other reason I think that I stayed with Fossil Free London as well, because I tried lots of different activist groups disloyally. <laughs> I think that, so there was one, so Shell moved, announced that they were moving to he the headquarters to the UK in December. And I saw this and I didn't really see anything going on about it. So I was like, can we do an action on it? And they're like, yeah, great. And I was sort of able to be like, okay, I'm going to coordinate this. I'll get everyone's help in. I'll ask people to sort of all all chip in and share the load of organising it. But there was so much scope to see an opportunity and then push it forward, surrounded by a community of people who were willing to help and bear that load. And that sort of flexibility and I guess agility that 
that the organisation has, I think, was another thing that, that really kept me involved. That kind of leads me on to my next question about Fossil Free London and their main mission. So could you talk a little bit about why Fossil Free London do what they do? I don't need to tell anyone listening to this that we have a terrifying, overwhelming climate crisis. And at the moment in a lot of Europe and a lot of the world, also a terrifying hike in, in energy bills, which is going to, could drive a lot of people into poverty too. And obviously, fossil fuels are at the root of both of those crises. And I think when we talk about climate change, we often have this tendency to distance it, to see it as something that is temporarily and also, but more, more often geographically far away, islands that are at risk of being submerged or glaciers that are melting or countries that are facing appalling flooding. And obviously those are very viscerally its impacts. And for the most part in London, we don't experience those in anything like the degree that, that some other communities do. But I think so much of, so, so many of the driving factors behind climate change are here based in London. And we have a little bit of a slogan within the group, which is climate crisis made in London, mm-hmm. because so many of the big institutions that can change this are here. You know, I've talked about Shell's headquarters being here, same with BP, same with sort of so many like parts of the British state, same with the, you know, banks like Barclays that are that are funding huge amounts of, of fossil fuel infrastructure. We have a sort of a, an incredibly lucky position of leverage because we can get up close to those people and confront them and try and like, challenge them on what their decisions what on the decisions they're making. And stop them being able to just continue with business as usual, continue with new kind of fossil fuel infrastructure. So I think that's why that's that's kind of what the what the group exists to do to make the city inhospitable to those people. Um, and then the tactics really follow on from that. You know, we do direct direct action or creative stunts or protests and all of these things because they highlight in a very visual way that is harder to ignore the architects of climate change, whether they see themselves as that or not, are right here. Like all around us. I, I think you've just explained brilliantly why it matters what we do here locally, because you might just look at the curve of the UK's carbon emissions and see like, oh yeah, well, that's all going in the right direction. So nothing to worry about. We're doing our bits. But in fact, we are still one of the biggest funders as a country of climate breakdown around the world. And the companies responsible for that are sitting right here next to us. You talked about Shell, you talked about Barclays, two of the companies that we often directly target, but there's so much more there. Lloyds who do insurance for oil oil and gas developments around the world. There's HSBC who, I mean, oh my God, I don't even know where to start. It's just evil incarnate and so many other companies. So there's lots of stuff that we can do locally to actually have impact. Right. And if I could just pick up on that, I think it's, you know, Britain has a historically a huge contribution to to climate breakdown. Absolutely. But it's also... It is a declining power. And I think a lot of people have like reflecting on the diminishing of, of the country's sort of power on the world stage, which is which is all true and is a good thing as well. But Britain continues to have this really outsized influence in terms of creating the this the finance system that underpins a lot of the fossil fuel industry. London has, compared to many other global cities, a far, far bigger contribution to driving that that industry. Yeah. So let's talk about what people can do to get involved. So what kind of experience do people need to have to join Fossil Free London? I know this is a softball, but I I think it's still really important for us to tackle this. 
Yeah, just to interject there as well, um, because I think some people might be deterred by the idea that the only thing you can do is to do civil disobedience actions that can potentially get you arrested. Um, And I think that was something that surprised me that you can act. There are so many different ways to get involved. I mean, you've said it for me. There are a million different things you can do. And most of them carry very, very, or most of them carry no risk of arrest. You don't need to be willing to glue yourself to the street. You don't need to be willing to chain yourself onto something. You don't even need to be willing to sort of have a confrontation with someone face to face. We need people doing everything, whether that's sort of organizing meetings or talking to new people or designing things or doing digital things or planning or researching. All of these things really need to sort of come together to make our organizing work in an effective way. And we don't just want to use the same old tactics again and again of we're going to sort of glue ourselves to this building or lock on in front of it and not let people in. That can be really effective and it's a really valuable thing to do at times, but it's not the only way to make change. And it's something that the organizations that we target get wise to very quickly and learn to adapt to. And and also just picking up on what you said earlier, Patsy, it's not something that everyone can do, um, whether that's, you know, for, for any number of reasons, people may not all be, be able to run the risk of arrest and, Frankly, we can't, as a movement, afford to not bring those people in because there there are so many ways to get involved. Yeah, I don't want to hold myself up as a symbol of diversity. I'm anything but. But still, in in order to invite people from as many backgrounds as possible, and we need to hear these voices very desperately to create an inclusive movement, we also need to have a diverse set of tactics that we can deploy where everyone can get involved. And maybe you can just talk a bit about the kind of skill sets that are needed in fossil free London and in general in activism that are useful? There are no skills. No one needs to know anything. Everyone just needs to come along with an enthusiasm to do something and a willingness to learn things. Everything else, honestly, I know this sounds like I'm just sort of trying to just pitch shamelessly, but you don't need to know anything to come along. Climate change, climate knowledge about how, how climate change, its causes, its impacts, the technical side of things, the politics of it. We can explain all of that. It's really simple. And for most of the nuts and bolts in organizing, you don't really need to know that. And then the, the practical skills, you know, how you organize meetings, how you get people to go to an action, how you do all of those things. Again, come along. We'll explain it. You can shadow someone. You can learn learn on the on the job, as it were. If you have skills doing digital things, that's fantastic. But if not, again, you can learn it. And you know, we have we, we do sort of we sometimes do things that are quite craftsy that involve constructing props that we could use on a protest. We made a giant paper mache whale. So if you have skills in wicker work or paper mache, fantastic, we can put them to use. But or if you're a researcher and you're really good at sort of pinning down when these sort of evil corporate execs are going to be speaking in a public place so we can go and talk to them face to face. Again, that's fantastic. We really want that. Or if you're really good at web development, our website needs a lot of TLC. Please come help us. Basically, any skill you have or none there will be a way of putting your time and energy to use. It's a question of being willing to to come forward and be positive and throw yourself in there. Yeah, I just recently heard, if you're an accountant, please join climate groups. They really need accountants. So there really is no skill. God, don't look at our accounts. <laughs> no, no, they are fine. But that we, you know, that again, those skills are really useful. Yeah, that's it. Uh, whatever skill you have or none. I, I feel like I've not really deployed any of the skills that I have from my professional work life at this. And I still feel like, I have been useful in small ways before here. So <laughs> really, if, if I can do it, anybody can get involved. Pass, you've literally started a podcast. This yeah, is huge. Exactly. Well, let, let's see if this ever gets released. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know, but I would be really interested when you said you've been looking around at different climate groups and getting involved. Like, have you had this sense of, you know, anyone can get involved with them? Or does it, do you think that we still give off this, I'm not just talking about Philosophy of London here, this sense of being a, a movement that you need to have lots of skills to be part of? I suppose I think it's kind of also more knowledge as well. When you feel like you don't have expertise knowledge, sometimes that feels as if you can't enter these spaces because you'll just be surrounded by people that know so much. But I think that ultimately, once you get into these spaces, you realise that all levels of knowledge are welcomed and you actually learn a lot by being in these spaces, the kind of conversations that people have. And also, I think the main thing that I remember hearing was that, to be honest, the most important thing is sometimes even just being there, being present, an extra person, it adds to the actual, the level of solidarity in the movement. And people undermine themselves and think that's so little to just include yourself. But I think I I came across a lot of different activists on Instagram that were talking about how you can just join by making a tea for activists. Like you do not need to be any kind of expertise in a field Um, So I think because I had access to those kind of different opinions, I was able to kind of push myself and be like, you know what, I don't need to be an expert. I don't need to have X, Y, Z skills. I can just learn on the job. (laughs) That's such a good point. Also, I love the tea analogy. And I'm now picturing, can we do like an Instagram post or a poster with, you know, do you know how to make a good tea? Join an activist group. We need you, kind of thing. I wonder, just like, sort of, can we riff on that, just to be, just to impress upon people the total lack of technical skills that are needed to get involved. Let's talk very practically here. So, if somebody listens to this and wants to get involved with Fossil Free London, how do they do that? They go to our website, fossilfreelondon.org. They click join us and they sign up for a welcome talk, and they will have a. They'll, be, they'll come along, have a friendly chat with a few of the new people and me or someone else. We'll explain about the group. We'll explain how they get involved. We'll find out, but also hear from them what they want to do, how they want to put their energies to use. And then they'll, they'll, they, get, they get stuck in and come along to organising meetings, come along to actions, come along to socials. But the entry point is signing up for that welcome talk where we'll give, get the info across. Just as a side note, I did have Nuri for my introductory talk and he was incredible. Just really, really warm and open and uh, explained all the different strands of Fossil Free London really well. Because there are so many. You can join so many different types of strands, whether that's online activism, whether that's in real life, whether that's Reimagine London. I don't know, actually, that kind of leads me on to that. Could you just name maybe the different strands just so people have an idea of what the types of things they can get involved in? So I suppose I've mentioned all of the different climate baddies, for want of a more technical term, that London has to offer us. And correspondence that we've got a few different campaigns that target different ones. We've been working a lot on tackling new oil and gas fields and weaving into that particular focus on Shell because Shell is, is the company that is driving a lot of them. So right now the government is set to, or looks very likely to approve, 30, 40 new licenses to drill for oil and gas in the North Sea. There have been some particular, what are called charismatic examples, although I think that's an ironic description, such as the <laughs> Jackdaw um, gas field and the Cambo oil field that people may have heard of. And we've been working a lot of, on those campaigns that are sort of targeting, targeting Shell and targeting the government department responsible and trying to push them into not allowing any of those to go ahead. But I mentioned also that the finance side of it, and we're, we're trying to sort of go to that root of the root of it as well, because obviously 
these oil companies can only pursue these massive infrastructure projects, which are hugely expensive. It costs huge amounts of money because they get support from, from the private banking sector. And Barclays Bank, headquartered in Britain, presents itself as this, you know, very friendly, approachable, modern British high street bank. It's the largest investor in fossil fuels of any bank in Europe, if you look over the last sort of six years or so. And so we've been targeting, we've also got another strand that targets them and is trying to push them to pull their investments out of fossil fuels and, and put them in renewables instead. And then alongside that, we have other groups that work on trying to present a kind of more positive vision. We, you talked about Reimagine London, and that's about trying to sort of show to people how we're not just about saying what we don't want, new oil fields, fossil fuel finance, but also the things that we do want, like cleaner air, better public transport systems, you know, warmer homes, cheap, cheaper energy, all of these things that will be get better in people's day-to-day lives as a result of putting in the, the changes we need to tackle the climate crisis. I could go on and on, but what about you? What, I, do you guys want to sort of mention any of the other groups that sort of you think are particularly interesting to people? Oh, well, we've got a podcast. <laughs> go on, tell us about the podcast. <laughs> This is meta. <laughs> I, I think we can skip that bit. That should be kind of self-explanatory. But what else do we have there? Yeah, you mentioned online activisms. We have a little group around green trolling, just making sure that as fossil fuel companies put out their greenwashing statements online, whether that's through tweets or Facebook posts or Instagram ads or LinkedIn posts, that we have some people who respond to it and just correct whatever statements are out there. So other people who come along might actually see that they are usually full of shit. Do you have any other favourite strands? So the ones that I'm in are the online actions. I do actually see the benefits in online pressure, whether it's, you know, tweeting your MPs or MSPs, or whether that's actually just tweeting about or getting people involved, just digital door knocking, reaching out to people and saying, by the way, we exist. And <laughs> if you want to get involved and kind of have your say, then you can. And I think it's such a great outreach tool. So I think the online spaces are really great, especially if someone doesn't have the maybe privilege to go into these kind of offline spaces and physically protest. So I, I really benefited from that different strand. Reimagine London is just incredible to me. It just seems like a kind of almost utopian, I want to say, just kind of way of living. It's just incredible the way that I think that's the thing that people I think struggle with is that, okay, if we don't have fossil fuels, what can we do? And I think Reimagine London is great for that because it shows you the ways that we can live in a community with clean energy, with solidarity and actually helping each other and making sure that people that are isolated or lonely are still involved in the community. Because ultimately, community activism is is really ultimately where the change is at. That is such a lovely overview. I, I really like this. And maybe we should also talk about the dif- different tactics, because you mentioned physical protests, but even there it can take different shapes. So one might just be a static protest in front of a building. We do this quite often in front of the lovely Shell building in Waterloo. There isn't really a lot of space to walk around, but then you can have die-ins there, you can have speeches in front, you can have um, almost like a little dance party like we've had because we had a lovely little band accompanying us. So when there was the Trade Union Congress demo, we tagged along and had a little segment of people who were concerned about the climate. And that actually resonated quite well with all the other people who were there and were concerned about their bills, because it is, as he said, ultimately 
the same thing. Then there could also just be outreach actions where we go out and talk to people and hand them little flyers and just make sure they are aware of Shell opening up a new gas field, which is going to take up millions of tax subsidies and will do nothing to help with people's bills and only make shareholders and executives richer. So there are so many different ways how if you want to get just physically involved, go out there, how that can happen. I suppose it's also useful to mention that if you feel like you don't only want to do, do demos, but you want to do things that maybe are a little bit more kind of adrenaline building, and obviously a demo is very adrenaline building. So, for instance, we organized a shutdown of Shell's annual shareholder meeting in May. It was glorious. We had about 80 or so people going inside, fully suited up as, as Shell shareholders, and then shutting it down from the inside, not letting it go ahead, chanting, disrupting, forcing all the, everyone to leave the building. It took about three and a half hours for them to clear everyone, and the, most of the schedule had to be abandoned. For a while, we thought we'd actually have to, they'd have to completely scrap the meeting. And it was fantastic. And we had, you know, a demo outside, had people like Caroline Lucas speaking, which was really great. We got coverage in The Guardian, The Mail, The Times, the BBC. It was a really kind of great sort of sweep of media coverage. So we did that kind of thing as well. Or there's a, there's a company called UK Oil and Gas that they fly under the radar a little bit, but you don't really need it. It's all in the name. But they're essentially doing fracking in all but name. Maybe I can't say that. Maybe that's libelous. They're essentially drilling in, in areas of Surrey. Horse Hill is one of the examples that gets um, talked about a lot. Against the interests of local communities, there's been a huge out, outpouring against them. So we went along to one of their meetings again and, and walked in and shut it down. And they just weren't able to go ahead. So if you want to sort of get up a little bit more close and personal with the villains of the piece, then you can do that as well. I mean, three hours still matters when you consider we only have about two years-ish to turn things around mm. to maintain a somewhat habitable planet. So all these little things add up. If everybody around the world would do this to their local AGMs, who knows where we would be today? Nuri, what's your view of the fossil fuel company's role in like transitioning to a no-carbon future? I mean, it's a fantasy. Look, I would love it if Shell, BP, Equinor, any of them announced that they were going to immediately stop all oil drilling or stop all gas drilling, put their phenomenal amounts of money in, into renewable renewable energy, into research and green tech, all of that kind of stuff. But frankly, they're not. And they, there is no sign that they're willing to. They invest a tiny, tiny negligible amount in putting up some windmills. But not really. But the rest, they're investing in new oil and gas fields. And they have plans to continue expanding all of that. So the idea that they have this kind of positive role to play, I, we're just not seeing evidence of that. It's frankly, it's frankly greenwashing. And th these are companies that have known about it since the 70s in many cases. They've known about the dangers of climate change and they've systematically tried to steer the public conversation away from it by sowing doubt about it, by hiding the science on it, and by establishing a huge amount of political power. Like the lobbying operations that these companies are engaged with are, are enormous. Yeah. The, the number of meetings they have with parliamentary officials, the amount that they put into into sort of disseminating briefings, the amount that, of, of money that they put into shaping what, what sort of students in the relevant subjects go on to learn is, is huge. I think it's very hard to see a situation where they're going to turn all that around in the next few years, which is what we need to see happen. And it, but I think there is. It's, we haven't really engaged very much with the conversation of what we do with these with these companies that have this enormous degree of power. 
And I think there are a few there are a few campaigns like I think Shell Must Fall really deserve a shout out for this because they are starting to do that intellectual heavy lifting, saying, what do we actually do with something like, like this? Mm-hmm. Do we nationalize it and then force it to change that way? Do we just dissolve it? Do we break it up into constituent parts? How do you stop it continuing to have this huge political sway and you know, how do we also stop it just selling off the oil fields that it already has to other companies? So I don't really see them playing any effective role whatsoever, frankly. Right now, they are the obstacle and we need to cut them out of the political process around it. But I would be interested to hear what, hear what you guys think as well, because this is, this is my view, but you might, you might differ. Yeah, t- totally agree. They keep saying that they need to be part of the process as if that was somehow written in law that the companies who have caused the climate breakdown now need to profit from the green transition. But as he said, there isn't even a sign that they are positively engaged in that process. They are still actively lobbying. This is not a matter of the past when we talk about their first deny and then delay operations that have gone on since at least like the 1970s, if not longer. But it's still happening. The windfall tax we've seen here in the UK, there are records how the fossil fuel companies have lobbied them to get this big carve out in there. So they get, what was it, 92p on every pound spent on oil and gas operations, basically just completely turning the process of this upside down. That was through lobbying. Shell, for instance, who now claims to be this kind of big leader in the renewable transition, is still a member of the API, the American Petroleum Institute, who are engaged in massive lobbying operations, still against laws that would put a price on carbon, which, okay, I mean, that's that's a completely different topic. But so many other just completely harmful policies that put people's lives at risk. So it's... I would actually like to see them engage in this, but there's just absolutely no sign that they are willing to. And I think when you don't see a sign that they're willing to do it, the question then becomes, how do we shut them down? Yeah, exactly. How do we stop them? We just do not have the time anymore to give them the benefit of the doubt. It's just too dire. We can see the consequences now. So we can't just wait for another 10 years until they might actually no longer drill and then try and find an option. But yeah, as you say, it also comes with a bunch of really interesting questions about the workers in these companies. What do we do with all the people who will be out of jobs? And that's whether we as activists are successful or not. We have legally binding agreements around the world, all kind of coming together through the Paris Agreement, that at some point the drilling will stop and these people will no longer be able to work in these jobs. So it comes down to governments and these companies to find a way for these workers to either retrain or find other ways of making use of their skills. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I hope that like, how we build that fair transition is something that we can come back to in, a, in, in another episode as well. Just to wrap it up, that was great. What have you come across that has given you hope for the future? I think that there is a real growing recognition, and I see it in the UK, but I think it's, it's much wider than that, that the fossil fuel industry and the huge companies that dominate it are not working in anyone's best interests. We're seeing energy bills soar in a terrifying ways. And people are realizing that there are people who are profiting from driving them into deprivation. And that there is a government that is willing to let that go ahead and to facilitate that. 
and I think people are increasingly seeing this alignment of an appalling government and appalling fossil fuel companies profiting from their suffering and driving us into this climate breakdown. And it's a really grim situation, but the fact that people are sort of starting to recognize that more and willing to agitate and willing to take action against it and willing to do things like go on a, on, on a, on a bill strike, like Don't Pay has been, has been organizing. I think that is a really, really hopeful response to what is quite a dark situation. I totally agree with that. We are just at this moment where people think about fossil fuel companies. I just don't think outside of our activist bubble, that is a very common thing. I believe they've actually been very successfully been in the background for most people and not a part of their daily thought process. And just yesterday, I walked around in London and I heard some people discuss the energy price cap that was announced by the new List Trust government. And they realized how it just guarantees profits for these fossil fuel giants for the next two years that will be funded by taxpayer money. And just hearing this from just ordinary people on the street, I mean, sample size is small, but I was still very pleased to hear this, that this is now something that people talk about. And obviously for the most horrible reason, but at least they see who is responsible for this now instead of how it normally happens, blaming immigrants for it or other minorities. Yeah, there's no scapegoat now, really, that is is can be used by the government anymore. Exactly, yes. And one last question for you, Nuri. If you want to just kind of shut down and don't think about climate breakdown for a second, have you found any films, books, TV shows, any other pieces of media helpful in doing that? Well, I'm a massive podcast fanatic, but that seems like it's the wrong recommendation for this medium. This is the only podcast here. <laughs> this is the only podcast. There are no other podcasts. I would never listen to another. <laughs> I went to the theatre the other day and saw a production by a great immersive theatre company called Punch Drunk. It's in the Woolwich Arsenal. It takes you around this warehouse that is built up as this huge sort of Greek city, but in styles that sort of spans multiple millennium and you wander in and out you see all these actors doing different sort of styles of performance in different places and you kind of get this narrative in a totally broken down non-linear way and this has nothing wow. to do with anything climatey but there's ominous music and smoke machines and such sort of pizzazz to it all that i went in that for about sort of three and a half hours and didn't think about shell once and it was lovely. That sounds like very healthy. So support the, the, the arts and go to live performance. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Nuri, thank you so much for sharing this, but also sharing everything about your activism journey and the details about Fossil Free London. Thank you so much for, for having me on. It's been lovely to chat about these things. To be honest, it's been cathartic to be able to rant a lot. So thank you for giving me space to do what I would otherwise impose on my poor flatmates. <laughs> I'm really excited to hear who else you talk to and, and and the rest of your interviews. All right, thank you. Amazing. And that was our interview with Nuri. Passi, did you have any takeaways from this? Yeah, I think the part that really resonated with me was that local activism matters a whole lot even though the consequences can often feel very distant. So there are so many examples of this, but just to come up with one that we haven't discussed in the chat itself, there's this ECOP, the East African Crude Oil Pipeline. That feels incredibly far away. But when you look at where the funds come from, where the insurance comes from, all of that money is provided by Western countries. 
Total Energies is based in France, who are a major investor in this. Lloyd's is one of the insurance providers that we briefly mentioned in the interview. So they are, I think, still currently favored to provide insurance for this monstrous project. So those are things that we can impact over here, even if the consequences are felt in very different parts of the world. How about you, Topaz? What was your takeaway from this? I think my conversation with Nodi about the different ways you can get involved with Fossil Free London just reminded me how much there is something for everyone when they want to join um, a climate action group. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean going out on the streets and getting arrested. It can mean making a tea. It can mean joining an arts and crafts workshop. It can be simply just being active and spreading the word. So there's so much you can do to get involved. Yeah, just yesterday, I went to the Resistance Exposition in Soho. I'm sure by the time this is released, it will no longer exist. But that was literally an art exhibition, mostly photographs from people who were at protests. And I found it so inspiring, and I'm sure it will inspire others to take action. So really, there are so many ways how you can get involved, even if it's about just taking a photograph at a protest and then posting it somewhere or printing it out and hanging it up. But well, I think this is a great way for getting us to ways how you, and I'm talking now about the listener, can get involved. We can start with our welcome talks. This is definitely the best way of getting involved in Fossil Free London. We have welcome talks alternating every Monday and Thursday. The best way is actually to check our calendar on fossilfreelondon.org. You can click on the calendar menu point in the top bar there, or you can also just message us directly on Instagram. And then really exciting, on Tuesday, the 15th of November at 7.30, there's the Joy Collective, which is an evening of joy and creative connection with indie music and a punk headliner and DJs. And tickets start at £4 and you can go. they all go towards taking on the fossil fuel industry. What more could you want? And then we have our Barclays meeting that happens every Monday at 6.30pm online or sometimes also in a bar in, I think... Tottenham Court ride, but please look it up in the calendar again. And Thursday, November 17th at 8am, there's a Stop Rosebank demonstration outside the North Sea Transition Authority in Westminster. And then right on the same day, we have our weekly oil and gas meeting from that working group. And that happens at 7pm at Lark in Whitechapel. And then Kick Barkley's Out of Female Football is on Sunday, the 20th of November at 1130 at Stamford Bridge Stadium. And the last event we're going to mention here is the Reimagine London Renewable Energy Outreach, which is going to happen on Sunday, the 27th of November at 2pm. And it's always a lot of fun. You might have seen amazing costumes that they have. They talk to local residents about community, solar and other amazing energy projects. And so far, the reaction from people has been super positive. So there's so many different events coming up and of course it would mean the absolute world to us if you could go and subscribe, rate and leave a review. And you can also follow us across our different social media channels. There is of course the Fossil Free London account on Instagram. There is the Fossil Free LDN account on Twitter if that still exists by the time that this goes out. And you can also follow me. I'm at Passy underscore on Instagram. Amazing. So we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. I'm trying to think, how do I sit in a position that's probably the best, like this, maybe? She's going to be right on my nostrils. (laughs) I think there needs to be some outtake section in the end where I can keep this in. (laughs) So much editing. (laughs) Okay.
so many cool events. So many interesting. No, so many. So many. Thrilling, riveting. <laughs> <laughs> we got my out. So many ways to get involved. Okay, here we go.